Join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Welcome to a new week of Little Oak Weekly. Today we're doing an Ask Andrew Anything style episode. We reached out to our agents asking what topics we should chat about and questions they might have. So let's just jump right into it and give Andrew a call. Good morning. How's it going? Awesome. Super. Did you have a good weekend? Long weekend? Thanksgiving? I had an amazing long weekend. I was uh, in Shushwap with some friends and family and we're on the lake and we had a, yeah, we had an awesome time. We, yeah, it was just, it was exactly what I needed. I feel totally energized and I'm super excited for, for our time together here, actually. Yeah, we got some good stuff to talk about. Yeah, I know. I looked over the, uh, I looked over the list and I, I, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of valuable stuff there. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into it and do what I can to help out. Perfect. I figured the, uh, the first thing we'll just chat about real quick, Thanksgiving kind of makes sense for it is uh, Little Oak Cares. Some of our agents probably know what it is, some don't. So figured uh, it might not be a bad time to just bring up what it is, why it is. Yeah. What does it do? Yeah, totally. So a little bit of background, we, we introduced the concept of Little Oak Cares. It was actually right before COVID hit. I remember it was, mm-hmm. uh, we announced it at the AGM of uh, February 2020. And what, the, what it is and was it what it was intended to be is a internal fund uh 100% funded by our agents staff and office designed to help people who are either within our brokerage or directly related to our brokerage in times of need hence the term or the uh the the title little oak cares so that's what it is it's a fund that's now been in existence for almost 2 years uh, when it first started, there was probably four or five people contributing to it regularly. Now I believe we have upwards of 20 or 25 people contributing to it between agents, staff members, and uh, and management and ownership. And uh, the fund at any given time has thousands of dollars in it. And we've done some incredible things. I don't have the full list in front of me here, but I can say off memory, we recently... Um, helped uh, out with Chantel's Clausen's dad was involved in a, in a really terrible accident. We were able to help out there. We've done some things where maybe not somebody directly in our brokerage, but they're like related or close friends with somebody in our brokerage. We've helped them out in times of tragedy with whether it be, you know, care packages or some financial support. And so, yeah, it's this really neat fund that uh, I had an idea for because I'd observed it in another company for a number of years. And what it did in that company was amazing uh, in terms of, you know, the, the good feels that, that come from stuff like that. And so we have that fully operational, ready to roll, ready to help people out. If you want to contribute to it, uh, some people do it monthly, some people do it off of a deal, and it can be anything. It can be a few dollars, $10, $20, whatever, but it all adds up because there's a large group of people now who have bought into it. We have the ability to really positively impact people's lives in challenging times. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Norina, right, is the one they should reach out Narina to. Norina is the one it. who oversees the fund. So if you have questions or are interested at all, Norina is the person to talk to. And yeah, she's your she's your go-to. And then there's also, you know, she could even put you in touch with, if you wanted to talk to particular people who have been giving to it, I'm sure she could put you in touch with some people to answer any questions. But like I said, there's 
there's really no limitation on how you can give. If you want to do a one-time thing or a regular monthly thing, or I know a number of our agents do, just like we have Children's Miracle Network and people give a portion or a, an amount off of every transaction, I know there's a number of agents uh, who are doing that. And there's no you know minimum or any kind of threshold. If you want to do five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever, it all adds up. And I, I was actually surprised to know how much we had. Like we had a, a few thousand dollars uh, or more in the account most recently. So it all, it all builds up and it goes to a, a great cause. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into some real estate related stuff. Yeah. The first thing, it's funny, I wrote here that I'm assuming you have systems, systems and checklists, but I, I thought about it this morning and realized that the reason I know that is just because I know you, but I assume you, you use systems and checklists in your business. Is that safe to say? Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. I, and it's evolved over time. Well, we'll get into, I'll, I'll let you ask your question. The, the way I do it and what I do has certainly evolved. And, um, but I'll, I'll explain that here as we go through. So I, uh, the first start of it was just, did you always, was that something that you did from the beginning or was it something you just learned as you, you know, grew? No, not always. I mean, when you start, you don't know anything <laughs> and, you, and you don't do anything. You just kind of react. Right. So, but I, I adopted systems very early on because of the people I was surrounded by and the people I was learning from. I mean, I, I kind of just sucked in as much knowledge as I could from the pros of that era that I learned from. And I figured out pretty quickly that if you don't write things down, if you don't develop systems, then not only are you going to forget things, but your the experience that you deliver to your customer or client is not going to be consistent uh, if you don't understand how to develop some systems. It's just going to, the experience they have is going to be the byproduct then of how busy you are, whether or not you forgot something and your stress and anxiety level at that time. The moment you put a system in place, you can, for the most part, erase all of those variables because now you're just more like a machine operating in repeat mode and you're not reliant on where your brain's at that week. Maybe you were sick. Maybe you had a stressful thing in your family for a period of month and during that time you forgot something. So I I figured that out early on that, you know, in order to deliver a consistent experience to clients, systems are uh, very important. Can you break down or give an example of one of the systems? I know you use, uh, you know, more than one, but is there one that you can kind of just break down as an idea of what it is and how you use it? Yeah. So actually, I'll I'll use the word checklist. I think that's a a word that's come up, I believe, in your question. And so system, there's a difference between systems and checklists, I would say. And so checklist, I so I pulled some stuff up just for this call because as as mundane as it sounds. If you don't have these like these checklists developed of everything that needs to happen within a transaction, then it's like one thing that's forgotten can lead to either a mountain of work or a problem, right? So it's as simple as as this. You know, I have something called an upcoming listing checklist where everything that we are aware of that needs doing is listed out here. And it's developed on like, you know, a, a, an Excel document, but it talks about my LTSA, which is getting... Landowner Transparency Registry. Obviously, that was a new thing that I've added in recently. Terra Firma. I have a subscription with Terra Firma where I can pull title and title documents for a, a yearly fee. Web forms. Obviously, preparing stuff in web forms. This is all my in preparation list, right? So I haven't necessarily listed the property, but if I know something's coming, this is what I'm working on in order to be prepared. Uh, I create a new folder in web forms, and then I create a new folder within my Google 
drive whether that person's a you know a buyer or a seller they go under the proper folder they get their names on that and then everything that pertains to what they're doing i've got somewhere to start dumping that information right so that something's being kept track of in a in a digital folder and then i've got a photo shoot and video you know organizing that sign installation you know ordering that for the right time uh, measurements if required uh, and then uh, write-up, like property property write-up, like the actual description, um, FinTrack stuff, property disclosure statement completed. So these are, again, I'm just reading directly from my list of things to do, but this ensures that there's never a moment where we get to, you know, having a property for sale and we're going, oh crap, we didn't do this or we forgot that because we're literally just going through this list every single time. And then I've got another new listing checklist that also goes through some of those things are repeat, but then some of those things are only relevant for after uh, a new listing has gone has gone to market. Does that make sense? Yeah. You mentioned that the systems and checklists, a lot of it sort of came from the the people that you were surrounded with as you started and got into the business. So what would you say to somebody who's, you know, maybe newer, but or maybe not newer, but just hasn't started building some sort of checklist or system? Where do they start? Well, I mean, I just would go to, so first of all, listening to a podcast such as this helps. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the time when I was in that space, I mean, podcasts and things like that didn't exist. There was training via, you know, uh, the Buffini model, which I was involved in, where I certainly got some value from that. But then just go to the, go to the people around you in our office. Like in, in my era, you know, the people that I went to for this, you know, free and valuable advice are many of whom are still with us today. You know, Larry Siebert, John Corey, Stan Weeb, Gary Dirksen, you know, these guys are all still, still with us. But then, you know, today we've got great people around us who, who are always available. David Corey, Wendy Forche, Kurt Dirksen, Pratik Singh, Joe Pratap, Matt Tinsley. Like there's people all around us who are just absolute superstars. And all you got to do is ask them, say, hey, can you, can you help me with this? Or what do you do here? Or how should I make this happen? And I'm sure the majority of them, if not all of them, would be more than happy to share how it is that they do it. They all have their own systems and checklists. They're going to look a little bit different. And it's important that you customize things to, to the way you want it. But that's what I did. I literally just leaned on people around me who were way more experienced. Okay, so let's let's jump a little bit here. I want to sort of I don't know what the how I would word this. You're going to walk us through the process of how you would deal with some of the stuff. We've had questions with regards to what is it that you're doing from a we're going to go from firm to possession on a deal. So deals firmed up, mm -hmm. but now we've got the the process to possession. So first, we're going to start from the listing agent side uh, and just starting with how and what you're communicating to your client during that process. Okay, I want to just re so we're talking to a buyer or a seller. We're talking to you. And yeah. you are talking to your seller. Got it. And we've sold the home and now, you know, we're firm. And then what are we doing between then and completion? Possession, yeah. Okay, possession. Sorry. So the first thing we're doing is figuring out who they want to use as a lawyer or notary. And that conversation oftentimes will start before we actually have a firm and binding contract. That would be something that I would just tend to find a way to bring up in conversation throughout the transaction. More so for client education, sometimes people have questions about, well, what does a lawyer do? What does a notary do? What's the difference? You know, what's the pros and cons? And so probably we've already talked about that at some point in time, but then the deal goes firm. We need to say, hey guys, need to now make a decision. Who do you want to work with? So that's number one. Also, again, depending on how you 
operate, this could be relevant or not relevant, but what I like to do is to get to that point, there's probably been a number of documents signed. I'm not talking about the listing documents. I'm talking now stuff pertaining to contracts, right? And so even if the client has retained copies through the series of negotiations or whatever, I like to send them one final email that just says, hey, everybody, here is your fully executed contract of purchase and sale along with, and if there's anything else to be included, da, 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 right? And then that way, I think from the client experience perspective, they're not having to hunt through multiple emails to find documents. They know that they can just now keep that email or just refer to that email or the PDF in that email, and that's all they'll ever need. And then of course, I'll, you know, if in that moment, there's a relevant broker or bank that they're working with, I will CC that individual on that email as well. So that person has what they need. And then from that point, depending on, I mean, there's some variables here, right? Like is the closing fast or is it, is it long? And, and uh, I will say that if there are things to happen, so like, let's say I'm repping a seller and we've negotiated in the transaction. I actually just had this happen where in the deal, in this particular transaction, there was two things that needed to occur. The furnace needed to be serviced and there was some deck railing that had been damaged that needed to be needed to be repaired and it was in the contract of purchase and sale that the seller needed to do that so that's a tough one right you you negotiate something and then everyone's happy the deal's done and then you go away and everyone forgets about it so in that moment what i immediately do is i will go usually well it's i was going to say two or three weeks i lean towards three weeks out from completion and there's a reason i pick three weeks i'll tell you in a second it goes into my calendar and you can you can set it as a reminder or an actual item in your calendar, however you want, whoever whatever makes sense to you. But it pops up three weeks out from completion, and it says, you know, so and so needs to be reminded that this is an obligation of their contract of purchase and sale. Now, the reason I most often do three weeks is because I also have a letter that is a what's it called a boilerplate. You know, I, I created this letter years ago. I've tweaked it over the years. But it's a letter that goes out to all my buyers and sellers, but it just says, hey, you know, we're three weeks from closing. Here's everything that you need to be aware of and on top of if you aren't already. And that actually gets more into things like talking to your insurance company, making sure your insurance dates are all lined up for whatever your needs are there. Utility companies, you know, Telus, Cable, Gas, Hydro, calling those people in advance, making those changes. And then it's in that letter, if it's relevant, to that client, and in this situation it was, that I remind them, hey, you'll recall as part of our contract, you need to have your furnace serviced and have that deck repaired. Please confirm that you're on top of this. Let me know if you have any questions. Happy to help in any way you need. And then that goes out three weeks in advance. So yeah, I don't know what else I can say to that other than the fact that you know there's a lot there, but some of it is dependent on, um, on the negotiation as well. So and then anything specific you're doing once that uh, seller's giving you the lawyer they want to use? with regards to the lawyer? So not so before that three-week letter, in between lawyer and three-week letter? Correct. I, yes, but it's totally, it's totally um, deal-dependent. And I would, I would say that at, in my personal checklist, I don't, have a check, I don't have a checklist item in that time. I tell people oftentimes, I'll use this language, I'll, you know, we'll get the lawyer and we're done and we're kind of now coming down off the mountaintop. And then let's just say we've got 10 weeks between subject removal and closing. 
it's in that time. I'll say to my clients, hey guys, uh, we've just spoken to each other every day now for the last 14 days. Uh, you're probably tired of me and now you get a break. You're not going to hear from me until, and then I reference that three week letter. But then I will say to them, you can call me anytime you need if you have any questions. But at this point, we're now just in a waiting game and there's nothing else for us to do. So go ahead and, you know, whatever, plan your move, book your movers, all those things. But I'm not in touch with people until that three-week letter goes out. Of course, there's variables there, right? A question comes up. Like, it's totally common where someone's getting insurance lined up on a house. I have this this morning that I'm dealing with, actually. You know, somebody goes, well, my insurance company needs these questions answered. Okay, well, now, obviously, I'm in touch with the people again, right? So it's probably rare that we're not talking, but there's nothing planned and systematized from subject removal to that three-week closing letter. And then let's jump forward to the day of completion. What's happening for you with, when you're dealing with your seller? Dealing with a seller, dealing with a buyer is very different. We're on the seller. So with the seller, I find because they're most often going to something new, there, there's not a whole lot of like, you know, I'm basically just, you know, in touch with them in the days leading up. So it starts before that. In the days leading up, I'm in touch with them uh, via text or whatever's convenient for them, just saying, hey, confirming, I want to confirm the day and time you're going to be out. Now, of course, in that conversation, there's maybe conversations around cleaners. Maybe I've been a part of arranging cleaners. Maybe I haven't. But I'm just confirming exact days and times, not because I need to know, other than the fact that in a lot of cases, as everybody knows, I've got a buyer agent who's on me because maybe right. they're trying to line stuff up. So I'm trying to get ahead of that so that when I get that inevitable call, I'm able to say, hey, you're getting keys on the exact day and time as per the contract, or possibly, hey, my guys are going to be out early and you can have the keys at this day and time. But then on the actual possession day, it's very rare that, like that's a, that's a I would say it's a relatively insignificant moment for me and my sellers in that if my seller is going to a new property that I've also sold them, okay, that we'll get to that part. But in terms of giving up the keys, like their lives are in, you know, whatever it's a zoo. And oftentimes I won't even physically see them. Like I will have gotten one key in advance, or maybe I retained the one that I had. I tell them when they're done, lock yourself out of the house and you go do what you got to do. And don't worry about me. And many times I'm not physically seeing them. I've just got that key. I'm waiting to hear from them. And then I'm dealing with the buyer agent as that person's going into the new property. There's some, you know, exceptions to that rule, but I would say more often than not, that's what my seller possession days look like. On completion days, whether I guess it's going to be whether seller or buyer, are you in contact with lawyers or are you trying to just wait and get the registration and then deal with it? Or what are you doing? So good question. So if there is something I'm in contact with lawyers about weird variables to contracts that could be missed. So one variable could be that the buyer and seller have negotiated uh, something to do with tenancy. And you need to make sure that all the lawyers and everybody's on the same page when it comes to adjusting for either rent or damage deposits uh, or things of that nature. I mean, it's common right now too, is some sellers get an option to rent back and they become a tenant for a period of time. So I'm definitely in touch in the days leading up with that and that would be a via an email where i just lay everything out and say hey everyone reminder here's what's going on in this contract please confirm receipt and that goes out 
a few days in advance. No, I don't send it out any earlier than that because you got to remember, especially in this environment, most law offices and notary offices, they're not touching a file until a week in advance anyway, at the earliest because of how busy they are. So to send it out three, four weeks in advance, they'll literally have that email come in and they'll go, ah, I'll deal with that when I get there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then you asked if I'm in touch with the law offices on closing. Only if I feel that I need to be and I try to leave them alone as much as I can because I know that they're insanely busy just like we are. So I know there's, you know, a hot topic has been, you know, registration numbers and, you know, getting confirmation of closing. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I all I can say is that like I've had so many of my own situations where, you know, registration occurs at the very end of the day and, you know, everybody's gone home, lawyers check out at five, maybe our conveyancers are gone at five and and it's occurred, but the problem is, is that an email hasn't been sent or there, you know, you, or you phone the office, you can't even get a physical human that goes to answering service at the law office. So I just kind of chalk that up to, it's a byproduct of the circumstances that we're in, uh, that never occurs in a slow market, because in a slow market, you got a conveyance for dealing with one file in an afternoon. And then, you know, it's really only an issue if you're trying to have possession on the same day as completion. And of course, I avoid that whenever possible for the reasons we just discussed. And if you got possession a day or two later, then generally the very next morning, first thing is when you're getting that uh, registration letter. I, my, my, my theory is don't call the law office unless you have to. Because if we all are calling them all the time, then they're getting less work done. So, you know, to me, that's just a, like, if we all adopted that, then they'd probably get stuff done quicker and we'd all wait a little bit less. Would you check in with them the following day if you didn't get it the day of completion? Like how long would you wait before you were going to check in with either our conveyancer or them? Oh yeah. Like if I'm, you know, like if I had a completion that was supposed to happen, like let's say last night was a completion. I didn't get something till five o'clock and you know, I've got possession, let's say today at noon. Well, I'm on them at, at nine in the morning. Like I will have already called because I got possession at noon. But if I got possession tomorrow at four, then like if I got no reason to worry about that deal, right? Like if it's, Reputable agents on either side, you know, but we know the buyer and seller's case. Like, there's no reason to worry about it. No one has, there's been no smoke of any fire up to this point. Then I know it's coming. It's just that everyone's insanely busy. So I will generally not call. Like, if I didn't have possession until the next day at five, that would not be first on my list this morning at 9 a.m. I would just allow the lawyers to do their jobs and they're going to, if there's a problem, that's the thing. Like, we got to remember lawyers and notaries. They don't like to deal with problems. They like to bring agents in to deal with problems. So if there's a problem, you're going to get a call. And if you don't get a call, no news is generally good news. And it just means that everyone's busy. And if you're just patient, the, the paperwork's going to show up. So let's jump into the role of the buyer's agent. You're working with a buyer now. We're going again from firm to possession. How is your communicating different with the client and the lawyers? Or is it? So... It's this, it's slightly different because, you know, the buyer, you know, they're buying, they're not selling. They're, you know, something's happening where down payment funds have to show up at the law office. Now, if that's coming from a sale that you're involved in, that's one thing, right? Because that's pretty straightforward. It's hard to screw that up so long as the sale goes together. If it's not and it's coming from, you know, whatever, if they're first time buyers or if they've been renting and they got cash coming, then um, you definitely, I mean, here, I think it becomes relevant how engaged you are with whoever is doing their financing. 
And it doesn't need to be that they're working with, you know, quote unquote, your broker. It doesn't matter who my clients are working with. I'm always directly in communication with whatever bank or broker they're using. And I'm getting in touch with that person very early on in the process because I want that person to see the level and standard under which I operate. I want them to hear very clearly what my expectations are, and then they're going to witness those expectations and my follow through and communication. So that person I'm in touch with, again, on a need to basis. So if it's someone that I know really well, and they know what they're doing, and they've been around for a long time, then I don't need to check up on them. But if it's a, well, I sense a less experienced person or a newer person, then in the week or two weeks leading up to completion, I'm shooting them an email saying, hey, just double checking. We got completion on this day. Uh, is everything all good to go? Have mortgage instructions been sent? You know, where are we at? Give me an update, please. And then, you know, the, the, in the days leading up to completion, if those funds are coming, you know, if I need to be concerned about where those funds are coming from or if I have to make sure something doesn't get missed, then yeah, I'm talking to the buyer and I'm saying, hey, just checking in when are you dropping your deposit funds off at the law office. And again, this isn't happening in every scenario, right? It's buyer dependent, it's broker dependent. I know the lawyer and notary are also doing that. So you kind of got to just, uh, it's like feathering the, the, the throttle a little bit, you know, you got to know when to give it gas and know when to back it off. And so, um, but in a scenario where like I've got, like if I ever had young mortgage broker, first time buyer, and the first time buyers don't have a mom and dad living around, I am full throttle, full parent mode. Like I'm literally acting as though those people are my kids and I'm in touch with them nearly every day. And I'm talking to them like they're in grade three in the kindest way possible. But sure. that's how I'm acting. That, But if I got like, you know, whatever, some 65 year old buyer who's bought and sold 20 properties and they're working with their private banker at Royal Bank or TD, well, we're not talking about these things because they don't need that conversation, right? How's your, how's your day of completion different with a buyer versus seller or is it? Yeah, that's different because, you know, the emotions of buying something new are completely different than the emotions of selling. Not all the time, but most of the time there's, I think it's more appropriate or expected that you're involved for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, with some situations, uh, a buyer might feel some level of trepidation or fear that you know, they need to have you there because the property needs to be in the condition that they expected it or, or just the, the practical piece of the fact that generally speaking, the keys are coming from you, right? And so you got to physically get the keys from wherever they're coming from and get them to the buyer. And, you know, you're either, in my case, I mean, I either generally, I, I try to see the buyers not at the property in an ideal situation and this doesn't happen all the time in an ideal situation i get the keys and i try to get the keys well in advance the, the the listing as a listing agent you can release keys to a buying agent and prior to possession you know that you can give you can give someone the keys 12 hours for possession understanding like hey you can't go till this time but here's the keys and so i will try to get the keys in advance if possible and then the moment I'm allowed to go into that property. I will go there by myself. And again, this doesn't always work, but if it can work, I like to do it this way. I go there by myself. I run through in four minutes because I'm there for a completely different reason than the buyer's going there. And I just want to make sure 
is there any kind of a shitstorm I'm about to hit, right? Like, yeah. is everything yeah. the way it should be? I want to be prepared if it's not. And so that is so different than walking into the home for the first time with a buyer and then getting disappointed without the ability to react or, or prevent something. So mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many scenarios I've had where I go into a property before, I see something, and it's not like cataclysmic, but it's like maybe a bar- some garbage was left there or, you know, whatever. Something was not done the way it should have been. Well, I'm on the phone taking care of that before I even get to the buyer with the keys. And then when I'm telling the buyer, hey, you know what? I was just there. Place looks great. Uh, you guys are going to love it. Uh, one thing uh, they forgot, and even if I'm, even if this isn't the case, I'm covering at this point for the seller. Maybe they left something intentionally. Maybe they were jerks. Maybe they didn't care. But I'm phrasing it in such a way, hey, you know what? This item was forgot or they overlooked this, but don't even worry about it. I've already got it taken care of. It's going to be dealt with in a few hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. I've had things where there's damage. The, the, some you know idiot moves out and they damage drywall on the way out. And I've I've got a list of people in my life who are my my problem solvers. And the, what I'm communicating to the guys, I'm going, hey, you know what? It looks like there was some damage when they moved out. I got people to take care of that. You guys just go ahead and move in. We'll get this all fixed and cleaned up after your move because you're likely to ding a wall or two at the same time. And then I'll have my guy come in and we'll we'll clean that up for you. Um, so it's just completely different messaging than um, than being surprised at the moment together. Thing I'm going to bring back is if we go back to completion, and this is both for buyer and a seller. Mm-hmm. What are you doing when the client of yours wants to know? You've got a client that maybe is nervous. Did the money go through? Did everything actually complete? Is my house actually sold? But you're not getting that registration. What are you saying? Um, so yeah, okay, I got it. So a little bit of this is dependent on the lawyer and notary that they're using. So, and this is why, like, there's people that I will use and there's people that I that I won't use. And I mean, not that I have complete control, obviously, but. There's some people within the industry where I would just say, like, this is one of the reasons why you don't work with them because communication's poor and I, clients get left hanging all the time. Assuming that's not the case. So, again, you know, assuming that my clients aren't working with somebody like that, then if we don't get registration and the client feels left in the dark and I can't get any info, then my messaging to the client is like this If there's a problem, if there's ever a problem where something's going sideways, we get a phone call. If you don't get a phone call 99 times out of 100, it's because people are busy and we're going to find out in the morning. Nobody ever doesn't call when there's an issue. When there's an issue, you're going to get a call right away. Maybe mortgage funds haven't showed up or they can't clear title properly. The moment any lawyer or notary has an issue, the first thing they're doing before they even call the client is they're calling the real estate agent. So if you haven't gotten a call, and your client hasn't gotten a call, and assuming you're not working with an incompetent notary or lawyer, my messaging to the client is, hey, you know what? Relax. I know it can feel unnerving, but people are busy. I'm sure it's fine. If I can get a hold of somebody, I will. But otherwise, let's just chat first thing in the morning, and I'll confirm this with you at like, you know, 9, 9.30 in the morning. And then again, you know, that's where, depending on how quick possession is afterwards, or whether or not those funds are needed for a purchase. And that's a possibility, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. there's a purchase the next day and that's what's creating the nerves. But again, you know, in most cases, that lawyer that's handling the sale is also handling the purchase. 
And it's been my experience with good people in the industry is that if there's an issue, you're getting a phone call. If your phone doesn't ring, that's actually the most beautiful sound. Because if my phone's not ringing, I know there's not a problem. Uh, and then just sort of the last part of this is we talked about dealing with first-time home buyers, and you said you sort of you know baby them along, hold their hand. Yeah, I, do you do a possession the exact same way with a first-time home buyer as you would with anyone else? No, you got to baby them more, right? I mean, they're they're babies. So, like, I've sold lots of properties to people who've moved, like, you know, client who's moved maybe with me four or five times, or let's just say not with me four or five times, but maybe they moved ten times in their life. It's a far more mechanical experience. These people know what they're doing. Uh, it's not as big as of a moment in their life, mm -hmm. and so. I'm far more likely to step aside on that day with those type of people. Like I feel in some ways I'm in the way if I'm trying to make it about, you know, me and whatever gift I want to bestow on them, you know, mm -hmm. like step aside, everybody, the real estate agents here. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't quite do it that way. And that's not to say that, you know, it, it can't be like, I mean, Pamela Studenberg has an incredible you know, system and plan that she does. Her and Natalie are, are, and Christian as well, they're unbelievable with what they do with their clients. And if anyone wants to hear about that, I think that's probably four or five episodes ago now on the podcast. But I, I haven't made a habit of doing that with my experienced buyers. I'm usually, get the keys in their hand. I like to let them go to the property on their own because again, in my ideal scenario, I've already been to the property, so I don't need to see it. And I want to give them their space there. And then when it comes to follow up and actually if there is a housewarming gift or something like that that in my plan is actually happening a few days later i feel like a moving day is a bit of a shit show it's messy and dirty and hectic i want to give people their space to to be in that and then i want to come back in the days following when most real estate agents have disappeared and i want to um, leave them with a lasting impression of you know thanking them and giving them whatever I want to give them. And now, you know, we're in a space where we can actually have a bit of a conversation uh, because it's not their moving day and they're not totally stressed. But with a, sorry, uh, back to your original question of uh, new buyers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm probably physically at the property with them when they're, you know, like a, like a, <laughs> you're taking them over the threshold and holding their hand and, you know, new buyers oftentimes are buying Strata. Strata's way more high maintenance. You know, uh, we didn't get into that. I can certainly do that. But with Strata, you have to figure out elevator keys, move in, move out process. Uh, you know, every Strata usually puts pads up in their elevator, where you're allowed to park your moving truck, figuring out, figuring out utilities with these Stratas can sometimes be a bit weird because a lot of these new Stratas have some of the utilities included, like you could be with Shaw or with Telus for free in your strata fee uh, in any new new buildings. So specific to that, if I've got a deal like that, then whether or not it's a new buyer, that's just an added thing that goes into the process of, remember I talked about that three-week utility yep. uh, letter that goes out. If that's the flag where if we've got a building where some of these variables are are there then me, then I'm helping the buyer work through some of that but that's also the time for the buyer to start taking responsibility because they're going to be living in this building and in the strata documentation they've got the contact info for you know president and manage you know whatever the management company is 
And at that time, they need to be emailing and calling and saying, hey, we're moving in on such and such a date. What do we need to know? Uh, so I'm not doing that for them unless it's absolutely necessary for me to get involved. I'm more just directing them and saying, here's who you need to call. Here's the way this is going to go. And you got three weeks to make it happen. All right. You ready to jump to the next topic? Yeah, totally. Let me. Uh, we're doing, we're doing another, uh, <laughs> we're going to do another buyer agent, listing agent scenario. Okay. Multiple offers are obviously still the name of the game right now. Everything for the most part tends to be going multiple. So yep. I want you to walk through the process of how you handle the negotiations in uh, a multiple offer scenario from a buyer's side and then from the uh, seller side. Oh boy. We got, we got, yeah, you, big got one. you got 45 more minutes. This is going to get, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> going to get deep. Your card's clear this time. So yeah, 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 no deal. Yeah. I don't have the recording <laughs> stuff. Okay. Do you want to start with buyer or seller? Yeah. Let's start with the buyer side. Okay. So I'm assuming we're, so we're going to assume that we're in a multiple offer situation, right? Correct. Okay. So I think it's really important. So I don't want to, I don't want to, well, we can get into this however much you want, but education of the buyer is really huge. I think in, 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 it plays an important role in helping your buyer succeed. And by succeed, what we oftentimes mean is paying more than anybody else, right? Like, let's be honest. That's what it often mm -hmm. is. So you could say in winning, perhaps they're even losing, depending on who you ask. But if you can't get the buyer in a place where they're prepared to pay the most, then you're just wasting their time and wasting your time and bringing everybody through a lot of emotional turmoil. So how do you do that? Well, depending on what you're looking at, you need to help the buyer see what the value of the property was yesterday, and by yesterday I mean maybe three months ago, what the property of the value of a, of a property like that was is worth today, and then what is the what the likelihood is of a sale number reflecting today's value or tomorrow's value, and you can do this through a story, right? So in this trajectory of this market that we've been in, where every new sale tends to be a new benchmark. It clearly then isn't a winning plan to pay the exact amount of money that the last similar property sold for, because that hasn't been the plan or that hasn't been the, the, the trajectory. The trajectory has always been more. And that's where a lot of people, I think, end up, you know, in losing frustration is that they go, well, that home just sold for 1.12. And so we offered the neighbor 1.12 and the neighbor ends up selling for 1.2 or 1.175. So You've got to show the buyer that that's been the that's been the the pattern in the previous month, so that they understand that when their moment comes to buy something, and we know the last comparable sale is one one two of what they're trying to buy. When we look at the data, we say, "Hey guys, on average, how are these sales bumping up every time? Are they bumping up two percent, three percent, four percent?" And then taking that data, we use that to formulate the number that we offer on that property. So does that make sense? Yep. That's one that's one thing. So that's the actual that's I would say that's the mental preparation side, getting the buyer in a place mentally where they're actually suited to aggressively compete. And if you can get them there and you know they're there, the rest is actually uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but the rest is a lot easier because if you're in a scenario where you're competing, where you're constantly in the middle of the pack, well, 
convincing a listing agent to give you another opportunity or work with you or whatever is very, very difficult when you're number four out of, or number five out of nine offers or 10 offers. But if you come in and you're consistently either number one or two or three, then you're just, your odds of getting what you want are going to be that much greater. And then of course, you know, there's issues of dates and, and subjects and things of that nature. But, you know, statistically, I'd, I'd love to know this. There's no way to probably track this, but I'd love to know what percentage of the time an offer wins when it wasn't one of the top three offers in terms of the number on the page to begin with. Right. And I would be willing to bet that it's like less than 1% of the time. If you're not in the top, you don't always have to be the number one, but you've got to be top three. You've got to be top three because we've all been there representing the seller. You got 10 offers in front of you. You're not looking at the sixth highest offer. I mean, you're looking at it, but you're not really looking at it. You're focusing on the higher ones and trying to figure out what those higher ones. Is there a way you can leverage the scenario to get the amount of money you're happy with and to maybe get a subject free offer or exactly the dates you want or whatever? So all that to say, mental preparation with the buyer, showing them the trajectory of the market, helping them understand that offering what the last comparable sale was is generally not enough. And if they understand and believe that and are prepared to do that, I think you've won a significant amount of the battle. And then from that point on, now you know you're walking around with what's going to be a great offer whenever you write it. And now it's about leveraging relationships, staying in touch with the listing agent, helping that person see that, hey, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Listing Agent, not only am I going to bring you an incredible offer, my guys are overqualified. It's going to be one of the cleanest, if not the cleanest offer you have. And you know that you're not going to have an issue with me because I'm amazing or I'm a great guy to work with or blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. As much flexibility as possible is obviously great. And then the other thing is, is I, I want to say, I want to give credit. Somebody in our brokerage said this. It was one of our younger guys, actually. I want to say it was either Bray Schulte or, ah, it's going to, it's going to, it's not going to come to my head right now. But one of the, one of the younger agents in our office said that they are borderline irritating to the listing agent. Like they're in touch with the listing agent all the time, constantly. It was Sheldon Clawson. I think that's who it was. Sheldon Clawson. Also happened to be Rookie of the Year last year. So that says something. Mm -hmm. But he just, I think he said that like, hey, like I want to be the guy that I don't want to piss the person off, but I want to be in their ear constantly because, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. And I can say that I've been in that scenario as a listing agent with somebody who's on me way more than anybody else. And you know what? I can't help but favor them. Because then when you're sitting in front of your sellers and you're trying to pick out of the mass of pile and say, well, who's the best? At the very least, even if that offer is not the highest, I can say to the sellers, guys, I mean, I can tell you that based on the, the real estate agent, these people are insanely motivated because he's called me 11 times in the last 48 hours and he keeps telling me that they'll do anything they have to to get your property. So we should probably put them towards the top of the pile. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you've got someone that motivated, then if it makes sense, you're going to probably give them an opportunity that maybe the other wouldn't other, otherwise would not have received. So I think being a squeaky wheel and and riding that listing agent hard can can make a difference too. So for for yourself working from the buyer's side, how, what is your communication like with that listing agent? Are you talking to them 11 times? Like if I'm repping the buyer? Yep. Oh yeah. Like I'm I mean <laughs> I'm uh, in touch with that individual a significant amount. Like, I mean, it would be 
I mean, this is where, you know, personality and, um, and your own personal experience come into play. But, you know, I, I, if I'm talking to another agent with whom I've got lots of history or, you know, let's say we've done a lot of deals together, I'll, I'll, I'll say to them, Hey, um, you know, why don't like, we know we're doing a deal together. Just, just tell me when you want to have everything papered and I'll get it exactly the way you need it. And we'll high five when this is all done and away we go. Like, I'm assuming in conversation that we're doing a deal. Right. And, and then when offer day comes, I'm in touch with that agent as much as I need to be. Like, you know, uh, I know what the program is. I know what the timing is. I, I know roughly maybe how many offers there are, whether or not it's five or 10. I'm not sure that makes a difference. I know some people think it does, but I don't necessarily think it does. I've got my buyers prepped exactly the way we need to be. And then the messaging to the agent is, is, hey, I think I've brought you any, whatever anyone could bring you, I think I've got you here, right? Like, and this, I'm assuming that that's the case. I'm hoping that I'm not walking around with buyers that aren't equipped to win. But again, assuming right. I am, then the number shouldn't be an issue. We should be in range. We've done everything we can in advance. You know, maybe we pre-inspected the home. Maybe we reviewed uh, strata documents in advance. But if it's not a subject-free offer, it's going to be darn close. You know, within reason, there's properties that we shouldn't be doing that on. And then, and if I've got my people really prepped, then we can do whatever dates. And sometimes we can even do a rent back, you know, where, where we're willing to complete on such and such a date. And maybe the sellers can live there for a month or two if they need to. So, I mean, I'm trying to create a scenario where the sellers, unless there's another buyer that's exactly like us, they can't really say no to us, even if we aren't the highest offer, because our terms are more likely, hopefully, better than everybody else's terms. And then even if there's an offer or two that's higher, because our terms are so good, maybe, just maybe, we get a call that says, hey, we love you guys, we love your motivation, your terms are great, you can have it if you're willing to pay this or that. So yeah, that's how I'm generally trying to position my people, and, and I would say my success rate is quite high. So let's jump now into the other seat. Now you're working for the seller's listing agent. Yep. What's your process through multiple offers? So I, it starts back. So when we like, you know, the, the communication around how this is going to go and what the day is going to look like starts, you know, before we're even going to market, right? When we're talking about the marketing plan and how we're going to do it, you know, obviously you got to get direction of offer signed, you know, assuming you're going down that path. And some, I would say the majority of the time I do, but there's some times where I still haven't, where I've gone to market to feel out how things are. And then maybe 24 or 48 hours in, we sign a direction of offers if need be. But assuming we're at that place and, you know, we've picked a day, then I'm telling my sellers to clear their schedule to the tune of roughly three hours, whatever that day is, whenever we've decided. I don't do, I, I don't know why people do evenings. I mean, I know people will say, well, I got a shift worker or this person works during the day. I mean, there's extreme situations, but as much as possible, I want it to be middle of the day when people are awake and brokers are available and lawyers are available and the whole world is open for a conversation should there need to be a conversation before we execute a contract. So I'm usually in, you know, working hours. It's all part of the plan and then when that day comes, I've got my people prepped waiting and you know, depending on the circumstance in the last year and a half, maybe I'm going to see them, maybe I'm just doing it over Zoom. But they're they're well prepared for um, what could take hours and whether or not we get three offers or 15 offers. I mean, it just, you know, you don't know, but you, you deal with what you got when you got it. 
how much uh, how much information are you giving because obviously agents are going to be bugging you they want to know how many offers all the details yeah. they can get from you what are you what are you giving to them usually totally good question so i'm you know i understand some people need that i i don't think it makes a difference whether there's five offers or 10 offers personally i mean i shouldn't say that it can make a difference so i'm trying to give people as much info as i can without it turning into a scenario where you know i can't get any of their work done because people are just on me 24 7 so i will mm-hmm. i will send out messages via our you know touch-based system to everybody involved saying hey you know reminder offers are tomorrow uh, and then when I've received an offer, I'll oftentimes send out a message saying one in hand, expecting and you know somewhere between four and eight. And then mm-hmm. usually 15 minutes to 30 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever before deadline, I'll then send out another one that says, hey, I got six in hand, you got 20 more minutes. you know. And, and all the while, people are texting me, calling me, whatever. And sure. I'm doing whatever I can to be as helpful as possible. There are some times where I've just said to people like, listen, I don't know because nobody tells me and whether or not there's eight or 12, I, I'm not sure that it matters at this point. So just send me your offer and I can't feel comfortable telling you what number we're at because nobody's giving me exact information as to whether or not they're going to be sending one. So I'm just, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, how are you, how are you prepping? And you talked about prepping buyers when they're going into multiples. What's your direction for sellers like obviously a seller wants the most amount of money but are you also putting value to some of the other things that could come in that contract with regards to terms and dates and all that kind of stuff or are you doing that in the moment well i tell yeah so through again the education process you know we'll end up talking about this leading up to it where where sellers will say like so how does this work is this like are we just is do we just sign like a common question is is do we just take the highest one and sign it and i say absolutely not right no, we don't. I mean, we might. It's possible that an offer will come in that is so much better than everybody else in every way that there's no point in having any conversation with anyone else. That's possible. I would sure. say, though, that happens, I don't know, 15, 20% of the time at most. And generally speaking, there is a group of people who are all good in varying degrees or for various reasons. Price, terms, dates, flexibility, maybe strength of buyer, strength of buyer agent, which is another thing we have not discussed, which I think is very, very important. So how I have that conversation when I'm sitting in front of the clients is like this. I will have reviewed all the offers prior to sitting with them. I am never, ever, ever looking at paperwork for the first time with the clients present. Sure. So if I'm going to their house, I've reviewed them all in advance. If I'm talking to them over Zoom, I've reviewed them all in advance. Then I've already shortlisted what I think should be shortlisted leaning into the conversation. And this is obviously more relevant when you got 13 offers than when you got three. If you got three, you're maybe not doing that. But if you got 13, you are. Because with 13 offers, sometimes you can have a $150,000 spread and there's just a huge difference, right? So I take what I think needs to be on the top of the pile. And then when I meet with the client, I say, hey guys, you know, I do the whole whatever, got good news, this many offers. And then I tell them right off the bat, I've pulled, of the 13 offers we have, I've pulled them apart in a couple different categories. In this category over here, we have this range of value and maybe these are all the offers with subjects. In this category over here, we've got four offers that are all subject free and here's the range of value. Now, I need to present to you all of these offers but I want to first draw your attention to the A pile. We're going to go over the A pile in detail. And then after that, 
we're going to skim the B pile, but if you have any questions about either one, we'll dig into them. And then if you feel we need to switch any of these back and forth and change the pile they're in, we can do that too. But there's a reason why I'm calling these the B pile and these the A pile. And then it's in that discussion and question process that we're flushing out things like, well, Andrew, why is this an A pile? Well, this person's here because maybe it wasn't a subject free offer, but it's our highest offer. And I feel really good about the buyer and the agent. So they're in the A pile. And then someone could say, well, why did you put, you know, this one? This one's subject free, but it's in the B pile. Well, it's subject free, but it's in the B pile because it's $110,000 lower than, you know, these other ones in the A pile. So we can move it to the A pile if you want, but for now I put it in the B pile. So that's kind of how I frame the conversation. And what I'm, the goal is, is I say to all my clients is I want to end up with a grouping of offers that we can leverage the situation for to get the most. And maybe that's two offers and maybe that's five offers. And when I say the most, it's not necessarily always price. Oftentimes it can be flexibility, dates, terms. And I've had a number of times in the last year or so where the seller has left some money on the ground or on the, on the table, I should say, and they've chosen a buyer for maybe emotional reasons. Maybe a nice letter came along with kids and they wanted a family in there instead of an investor and they left a few bucks on the table. I just repped a buyer in a purchase where the purchase price was 2.2 million. So this is me repping the buyer. Mm -hmm. And there was another offer on the table for 2.4 million. And the sellers left $200,000 on the table because the property had been in the family for 38 years. And they loved the fact they loved that what my buyers were going to do with the property, what their intent was, and the money didn't matter really to them anymore. And they just wanted to know that the property was going to somebody that they thought it should. So they left $200,000 on the table. That negotiation happened last week. Was that because of a letter or how did they know? So yeah, uh, good question. We did a letter, but more importantly than the letter, we had the buyer meet the seller, which was intentional on our part because we knew that this property had a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. And we knew that we, we felt strongly that the seller would like the buyer and their family and what they were going to do. And so there was a time when we went for a showing and the listing agent said, Hey, you know what? You can do that, but the seller can't leave. And I said, Oh, Hey, no problem. I said, in fact, that's great if they meet, because I think your seller would like to meet my clients and hear about, you know, what they're going to do. Like this is a pro this is a, a, a large acreage that's been in the family for years. And so that was the ticket. They hung out for probably, I'm going to say an hour and a half. I wasn't even there for most of it. Hmm. And from that moment, the seller had decided that they wanted my clients to have the property. And then, so in that process where you were talking about uh, speaking with your seller and going over the contracts, how often are you reaching out to the buyer's agents to give them a chance to adjust? So we'll zero in on, on our, you know, the, the top contenders that we want to be in conversation with and mm -hmm. how often are people getting a call? Well, if I had to say on a percentage basis, I would say in 90% of my negotiations, at least, uh, at least a few people are getting a call. That's not to say everybody who wrote an offer gets a call, right. but at least a few people are getting a call. So I would say it's quite high, but it's not. That opportunity is not given to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I put a lot of significance on what we know about the buyer 
and their finances and their intent for the property, and also what we know about the agent and their experience, track record, and my knowledge of their history. That to me is huge. And I share that with my sellers. I talk to them about that. And my sellers go, absolutely. Like, you know, if if we are, if we got three offers in hand and two of them are from unknown entities where we have limited information, and one of them is from a high level or reputable agent, let's say in our office, or even if it's not our office, like, but another agent that I know well, that I've done a lot of deals with, but particularly if it's in our office, I mean, there's a high level of probability that that person is getting an opportunity that the other two might not even get because experience and history mean a lot. Now that person might not do what we want them to do and we might not end up doing that deal, but they're going to get an opportunity that they otherwise may not have gotten purely based on the skill level and ability of the agent and or the knowledge we have about the buyer. Right. All right. I'm going to jump to the next question because I feel like uh, handling negotiations and multiples could be a whole training on its own. Yeah, totally. Okay. So the question was, what's been your experience? We're talking about uh, marketing and sort of target farming areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what's been your experience with what's been successful when marketing to a, a farm or a target area with regards to listings, solds, promotional? I don't know exactly what you do, but what have you found has been successful in, in that type of marketing? A number of things. So the, the first mistake that people make is they, or I don't want to phrase it that way. The thing to be most concerned about when you're starting is what neighborhood are you picking? Why are you picking it? And how many doors are in that neighborhood? So obviously this question changes as well versus like for how urban your neighborhood is. So if you're working a lot in a city core, then your farm is probably going to have a ton of strata, if not all strata. And then how you do that changes a little bit as well. For the purpose of the question, I think I'll talk about detached because, you know, we live in suburbia for the most part in the Fraser Valley. Like there's just, you know, it's it's more relevant. I think it's easier to do. And it's also more lucrative because you're talking about, generally speaking, higher value properties, which can create higher gross revenue. So on that topic, mistake people make is they, they don't analyze the neighborhood. They don't have a clear sense of like, okay, well, they just go, well, there's 800 homes. Well, what are they? Are they, is it, is it all single family detached? Is it townhomes? Is it condos? Of those properties, how many of them are rental? If you pick a neighborhood where it's too high a concentration of rental, and this is where it can become a real challenge with stratas, especially newer buildings. If you're, ta- if you're dr- talking to 800 doors, but 205 of them are tenants, well, you're wasting 25% of your communication and your dollars because you're not even talking to the homeowner. Uh, every time you do something. So I like to suggest that you want to be below a thousand homes for sure. In any neighborhood I ever farmed, and I've done a few, I was I was never higher than 800. And the sweet spot that I liked was actually about five or 600, which sounds small. And it is small in comparison to some of the larger farming platforms that you hear about. But you got to remember, every time you do something in a neighborhood, every door costs you an amount of money. Mm-hmm. And so it can feel like, you know, you should do more, but I like the idea of doing less and with a higher potency 
and higher efficiency rate because it's easier to get going. It's cheaper to do 500 doors than 1,000 doors or 2,000 doors when you're starting. And you can always scale it up. Like if you start with 500 doors, and I'll just throw out some generic stats, but like generically speaking, you'll see roughly 5% turnover. Uh, and that's a very, I mean, neighborhoods vary, but you'll see 5% turnover. So in 500, you're gonna have 25 listings come on the market in that neighborhood in a 12 month cycle. So if you can get like, I mean, like a really low number to try to get is 10%. Okay, so now you got two and a half listings uh, in a year. Two and a half listings might have turned into, let's call it $45,000 or call it, let's say $50,000 of revenue, right? There's not an extremely <laughs> expensive neighborhood. Well, $50,000 of revenue, I can tell you to market successfully to 500 homes, you do not need a budget bigger than about $2,500 or $3,000 to, to farm that. I mean, okay, I'm maybe being, let, let's be a little bit more generous. Let's say $4,500 to $5,000 to farm that neighborhood. And that's being, that's being generous. So if you, if you get to that point and then you go, well, I'm amazing at this. I want to scale it up. Well, then fine, then scale it up. But don't start at 1,500 homes because what happens is with any neighborhood is you've got to understand that you're probably going to go at minimum six months, if not 10 to 12 months before you see any return. Right. Well, I'd rather be spending on 500 homes than on 1,500 or 2,000 homes, not getting a return for six to 12 months. So start small, understand the metrics of your neighborhood, look at the average price point, do the math on what the average commission is, what kind of revenue you're likely to generate. And then when you're actually picking your plan, you know, you got to think about all the different variables of how you can communicate to a neighborhood. Now, the, the major ones that come up are you know, bus benches, some type of flyer or advertising through the mail or to the door. And then people do um, geographic stuff as well with, you know, uh, ads on Instagram and, and Facebook and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. And then you also can do neighborhood parties. Like I've done, you know, again, this is pre-COVID world, but uh, in the neighborhood I've done like neighborhood barbecues at the local park where, you know, you're just, at, you're, you're renting a bouncy castle, you're whatever you're essentially running an open house at a park with a bouncy castle and a barbecue for a saturday afternoon and you know you're doing that once or twice a year and all of the combination of these things are what create the touches over time and then that's what can take you from you know at first seven eight nine ten percent market share to um you know there, there's examples of agents uh in our market around us that have upwards of 25 percent market share in neighborhoods the highest I ever got to was between, there was a time where I had 25, but more around, I was more around 20% market share uh, in a neighborhood. And I had that for a number of years. So the other thing I would, I'm a big fan of, which um, again was challenging throughout COVID, but door-to-door -door delivery versus mail delivery of your flyers that you are doing, whether they're just listed, just sold, or just other marketing pieces. When you are in the mail, you're just uh, you're just a, a part of the noise that's there. There's mm -hmm. a ton of junk mail, and it's just easy to get lost. The cost to do door-to-door -door delivery is, while there's a little bit more management to it, and yeah, you got to get the right person, and you got to make sure that they're not running across yards, and you know, th there's a bit more work for sure. But the actual cost was no different than sending stuff through the mail because of how expensive mail has gotten. I was paying somebody 20 bucks an hour 
and they were able to do roughly 100 homes an hour. And so I was getting a 500 home drop done for $100. And there was times where it was $120 on delivery. Well, if you do the math on sending out 600 pieces or 1,000 pieces, I guarantee you, you're going to come to roughly a very, very similar cost. And the difference is, I found that my responses were so much better because when you're at the door, there's just a greater likelihood that when whoever picks it up, that's the only item they're picking it up. Even if they are walking directly to the trash can or recycling bin with your item, there's still right, a they longer, <laughs> it's a longer period of time it's in their hand. And then what happens is they get used to seeing your stuff at their door because you're the only person who's landing at their door in that way. And you can have a lot of fun with those pieces too. Like you can, I, I actually just, I recently shared some of my pieces with Dave Bawa because Dave's going to be starting a neighborhood in, in Langley. You know, I, I, I gave him some of the stuff that I did and, and, you know, I think, you know, he looked at it and he was, he said, he goes, man, that's cool. I've never, I've never seen that before. Or that's a great idea. And you just, you got to be creative with your design. And then you can hopefully ensure that that item is in that individual's hand a little bit longer. Maybe it gets stuck on the counter. Heck, maybe it even gets magnetized to the fridge would be ideal. But I just found my response rate door to door was just unbelievably better than anything I ever did in the mail. Was there any particular piece of marketing or thing that you tried that didn't work? Or you just thought like this wasn't worth it or maybe I didn't get as good of what I was expecting? Well, I talked about the neighborhood barbecue thing. I don't actually know if that did anything. Like it's hard to measure something like that. I know a lot of people had some free food and whatever and and maybe it did. That that's kind of I, I that was something that maybe I didn't do consistently enough. You probably have to do that over regularly over a period of time. So I don't know what that did. Uh I think that being top of mind for people in a neighborhood, if you can get some general branding of your mugshot on a particular bus bench, I as much as you know, we can laugh about bus benches. We can say, well, what do bus benches do? You know, they're old or whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm on, yet this has happened this last week. So uh, I'm driving with my kids in the car. We're heading out of town. Uh, we're going to the interior for the weekend. This is just when I was away this last weekend. And uh, I'm working on something with Joe Pratap and Joe calls me and it comes over the speakerphone in the car. And so on the call display, my youngest daughter sees Joe Pratap. She loses her mind and starts giggling while I'm talking to Joe. She's uh, like excited beyond control to the point where she and my wife end up interrupting the call because my wife ends up telling Joe how excited that Ebony is that she's talking to the celebrity Joe Pratap because this is the guy <laughs> that Ebony sees in our neighborhood every time we drive around our neighborhood. So as much as we can knock bus benches, if you have that kind of impact on a nine-year-old child then you got to know that those are doing something for brand name and face awareness. And so it was a good reminder. I think it's, they're, they're very valuable in neighborhoods that you want to farm because every time somebody drives around, we just don't know subconsciously how much that information is going into a human's mind. And the evidence is in my little nine-year-old who thought, or sorry, 10 now, she's recently turned 10, who thinks that she's talking to the celebrity Joe Pratap. So I think that there's a lot of value in having those and then doing obviously regular door-to-door -door and or mailer drops of just listed, just sold, uh, maybe, you know, current events within the community. And then I like what I call, I, I don't like the word generic, but I've always referenced them as generic marketing pieces. I think it's important to send pieces out that 
aren't referencing a particular property, but they're more just something substantial that's eye-catching, that's propping your brand and making people think. And so an example of one was one that I did where I made this piece to resemble an iPhone. And so just imagine something that's roughly six by nine, but it's actually shaped and looks identical to the screen of an iPhone. And it's a text conversation. And the text conversation was actually a conversation between me and a client that I made up, but it was still drawing upon real conversations of me and a client. And the specifics of the conversation was that it was dealing with something challenging in a negotiation. And then the flip side of the piece was something to the effect of, for your next move, make sure you hire an agent that can handle all the tough negotiations or tough conversations or something like that. And so, you know, was that the world's greatest marketing idea? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that nobody, or at least in that neighborhood, had ever seen a paper iPhone land on their door with an actual text conversation. It looked like a phone. And so they picked it up. They're like, huh, what's this? And that piece was very impactful. Like I got. It was two or three calls that I immediately got off of that. And I believe it was two listings that that turned into. And then I did another one that, you know, again, it's not a just listed or just sold, but it was a, it was, it was following the same idea. It was a stainless steel double door fridge. That's what the piece actually looked like. And then on the fridge and, and keep in mind on that iPhone, like there was no, my face was not on the front of that. It was just an iPhone text conversation. All of the marketing stuff was on the back. And then when you get it dropped off, you leave it with that side up, right? Like that, that iPhone side up. And then this one with the fridge, just imagine a beautiful stainless steel fridge and it had sticky notes uh, attached to it. And this, and this one went out around New Year's and the sticky notes were typical New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, uh, run a triathlon, eat better, lose weight, invest in blah, blah, blah. There was like 10 different typical things that I just, you know, ideas I pulled offline and they were all these yellow sticky notes on the fridge. And then one of those things was sell a home. I think the other one was buy an investment property. And then on the back of the card was, again, my marketing along the bottom, but it said something to the effect of whatever you resolve to do in 2020, do it with somebody that you, something to the effect of that you know and trust, right? And so again, it was just a really catchy piece that I think people hadn't seen before. And because it stuck around in their house a little bit longer, maybe, or didn't get thrown in the trash right away, it led to some immediate response. You made a comment when you were talking about the iPhone one of the, you know, the response that somebody would get, which is the, huh, what's this? Which I think really should be the goal of when you're putting something like that together, because that is your chance to stand out versus the garbage that's in mail. Totally. It's, yeah, like it's. It's just, can I make this piece survive a little bit longer than right. the average? That, that's honestly what it is. Yep. And if that means like paint it hot pink with a rainbow on it, like that would work. I, I did a few where the, the the card, like I say card, like the piece, I did a lot of six by nines, but the, the front was literally plain white. And then there would be a word on the front middle and it was a it was a word that I would bet ninety nine point nine percent of people had never heard of in the English language. And so to do this, I would actually like spend hours in my on my phone at night looking for words that I really liked. Uh, one of them was uh, one that pops to mind right now was vicissitude. I'll even uh, I got to remember the spelling. I'll, I'll type it in right now as I'm doing it. Vicissitude, and it was something about 
a change. Here we go. A change of circumstances or fortune, typically one that is unwelcome or pleasant. So I would have this word and then and then the definition. And it was just on this white stock paper. And like, it looked very strange, right? It's just sitting on someone's doorstep and like, what is that? So they pick it up. And then of course, they flip it over and then they see it's from me. And then there was a, there was a comment about the, uh, the, the changing circumstances of the market and being aligned with people who can help you traverse, you know, uncharted territory, uncharted waters or something like that. And so I did a series of these ones where it was just words on white paper with definitions. And I just think the, the lifespan in the home was that much longer than some other generic just sold, just listed stuff. And that's what led to the return. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to skip here real quick. We're going to do, I'm going to put you sort of through the paces here for this last one, because we won't be able to cover it in full, but I am going to quickly preface it with the fact that if you are a Remax Lidlope agent, we have a internal training session coming up on October 20th with Dan Lang regarding dealing with tenancies. Mm. But I wanted to ask you, and one of the questions that came up was how are you dealing with tenancies when you're the listing agent? Yeah. So that's different in my mind than if it's a tenant in the home that the sellers are living in versus just a revenue property that the seller does not live in. Let's go with the seller does not live in. Okay. So that is, yeah, I've, I've encountered, I've had a lot. I actually had one client in the past 12 months. I sold this guy over the course. So from 2013 to 15, or it might've been 12 to 14, he bought five properties in two years and he just sold them all in the last year. So he, he did incredibly well. He made uh, seven figures, whatever, decided he wanted to sell them all. So in each, in each case, they were all but one. One of them had been conveniently vacated. All the other ones this year were, uh, were not. They were tenanted. And so how that worked was uh, when he said he wanted to sell it, he would go to the tenant and explain to them that he's going to sell. So he would be the first point of contact. Uh, and then at that time say, hey, you know what, um, my agent is going to be in touch to discuss the process and what this looks like and answer any of your questions and blah, blah, blah. So he would kind of make the intro. Then I would reach out to the tenant. And in that phone call, that phone call was not, hey, we're going to market and here's how this is going to look. I set it up in such a way where, you know, I instructed the seller to make the intro about me. And then I told the seller when I made the call, that was going to be me feeling out how I think this is going to go best. Sure. So then in that conversation with the tenant, of course, they're like, you know, if I did, sometimes I did it face-to-face, sometimes I did it over the phone. And, you know, imagine, like, this is not a fun conversation for these people in most cases, right? So they had a lot of questions. And I'm, I'm seeing this as my ability to build rapport and trust. I'm not answering specifics because my messaging at that time is like, hey, guys, we actually haven't made the final determination as to when this is going to occur. We, we, we don't, we haven't picked a day. And so, you know, we're going to, and I promise you, you we're going to, we're going to give you that info as soon as we can. But what I'd like to hear from you is because this could impact our decision-making is like, how does this work for your life? What does this look like? Tell me about your lives, your schedules, your kids, you know, hypothetically, if we were to go to market, what would be inconvenient times, convenient times? Would you like me to try to do this over a four-day period where maybe you leave for a few days? Or is that impossible? You know, I'm gathering information. And then based on that interaction, I'm going back to my client. And I'm saying, listen, dude, like either 
these guys aren't going to be able to get this thing looking great, or they are, or maybe we can uh, send them away for a nice weekend. And we did that with, with one family. Uh, we put them up in a, in a hotel and they went away to, um, it was Harrison Hot Springs actually. So gathering information, then go back. Once we have all the information in hand, talk with the client again, strategize about, you know, the pros and cons of the different, uh, options, what makes sense on a pricing strategy. Uh, is there any point in having a cleaner come in or help people with cleanliness or staging or anything like that? And again, it all depends on the, on the tenant, right? Some tenants live in properties like they care for them like they're their own. That's a completely sure. different scenario than if the place is a total dump, right? So gathering info, going back, creating strategy with the seller once we have all the information we need, and then phoning the tenant back. And when you call the tenant back or meet with the tenant for the second time, it's, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's the timeline. Here's the exact dates. Like we've chosen everything at this point. There's when we're starting advertising. Here's when we're going to market. And if there is going to be some type of an offering, that's the moment when we say, hey, we're going to market this week. Could we, you know, help you guys get a place for a couple nights so that we're not disrupting your life as much? Or, and you know, and if there was a more convenient weekend for the tenant than another, then I would have found out that information in the first combo, right? Oftentimes that's not a possibility. Oftentimes it's, you know, people's lives are busy. They can't just up and go away. But if there's anything we can do to help them, gift cards for, you know, restaurants while they're going to be out, all that kind of stuff. I am prepping my seller from the get-go that that is part and parcel with selling a tenant-occupied property. And there's going to be some cost attached to making the, the, the tenant's life more comfortable. Because in the end, that's going to lead to an easier showing and selling process, which is going to impact the bottom line. What are you doing with a tenant that wants to know details with regards to what are the rules? How, you know, how long do I get? What's the, you know, totally. Are you giving them details or are you pointing them to somebody else? Well, I'm telling them number. I mean, there's always a disclaimer, right? I'm saying, Hey, I'm, I'm, I can speak to them. You know, I can say, Hey, I've been in this business for nearly 20 years. I own my own rental property. I think I know the residential tenancy act pretty much inside and out. So I'm happy to answer all of your questions I can from my perspective, but then give them the disclaimer. Hey, here's the number. Feel free to reach out to these people. They're going to do that anyway, right? Sure. Like they're going to. So, and, and just as a, as a comment, like I am never, the moment a tenant sniffs that you're trying to do something that's on the wrong side of the law, you're dead in the water. Like all trust mm -hmm. is gone. So just, you know, I say that to say that I am always on the safe side of the line. I'm always want to be the one to tell the tenant all their rights, because then I feel like that's all part of the building trust and rapport sure. uh, process. Yeah. So like, I, I want to always know more than they know, because then, you know, every, I feel like in that environment, you know, there, there's just, there's just more trust is, I guess is the best way to put it. Yep. And then just, uh, on the other side, then what are you tell, what are you saying to your buyers if they're looking at tenanted properties? Well, again, I mean, I mean, from that perspective, then I'm talking that I guess actually it's a little tough. Let's, let's switch that up and say you're looking at tenanted properties with the assumption that this person is not an investor. Your buyer is not. Yeah. So like we're going to be kicking a tenant out when we buy Correct. the property. Yeah. So then there's just, we got to be extremely clear on a few things. You know, when we go through the property, we're obviously, we're, we're taking in like, what type of person is this tenant? Are they taking care of the home? 
Are they, do we sense that they're going to be disgruntled? You know, we're trying to pick up on any cues about that because that could impact the level of risk to the buyer, right? And so by risk, I mean, maybe a tenant gets pissed off and they damage a property on their way out. And you could say, well, contractually, then the seller's obligated to deal with it, which is true, but it's still a pain in the ass, right? Like if that happens. Totally. And then the other piece is just understanding very clearly when, you know, the risks of, you know, the, the giving of the notice process and what that looks like, the risks of completing on the property and inheriting that tenant, even if that tenant has been given notice versus waiting for the tenant to have vacated and then completing. And there is a difference between the two. Do you have a preference? Would you recommend one over the other to your buyer? Sure. I mean, if it doesn't make a difference to the buyer, then I would, then I would say, wait until the tenant's moved out. Right. Because what you're, you're taking on, and even though the risk is small, and in some cases, like if the tenant lives like a church mouse and they take great care of the place or whatever, obviously you're going to feel differently than if they don't, right? But yep. if we're just talking about risk mitigation, then, and you didn't have to have it, then why wouldn't you just wait until the tenant moves out? But in this environment that we've been in, that's very competitive and it's hard to get properties. I mean, obviously we don't always have these luxuries and sometimes, you know, it's, it's been the opposite. Buyers have taken on far more risk than they otherwise would have in other circumstances and they don't have a choice. So again, that's not to say that's bad, but it's important that you show a buyer the added risk that they're taking on in doing something like that versus waiting for the tenant to move out. And my experience with people is that humans don't mind risk. What they don't like is risk that wasn't that they weren't told about. So, you know, everybody's allowed to make their own choices. And, and I think most people will take on a reasonable amount of risk. And most people, even if told the risk of taking on a tenant in this environment, they'll take the tenant on because that's the way to get the property. But if this conversation wasn't had and you didn't lay it out in such a way, they can lead to problems, you know, down the road when something does go sideways, if you haven't talked to them about those risks. Awesome. Well, yeah. So for Remax Little Oak agents, if you're interested in more, make sure you go on to the wants and haves. Dan Lang, October 20th, we're going to be doing a whole session just solely on dealing with tendencies. Plus he's got awesome stories. Oh, Dan is, so Dan has, uh, I've known Dan for I don't know, my entire time I've been licensed. I think he got into the business a year or two before me. I think it was 2001 uh, or thereabouts. I'm 2003. He's the only property manager I've ever used, I think. He's managed properties for me for years and he manages properties for a number of my clients. He is my first call. When I have a tenancy issue or problem, uh, he's great at picking up or returning calls if he's busy and he knows everything there is to know. And um, he's an incredible resource that we have right in our own uh right in our own backyard yep it's gonna be good all right man we hit them all Woo, we did it that was good minute or <laughs> hour, almost good. an hour and a half that was great those are some great questions i hope that people find that to be valuable i i think they will and i, I think those questions were all really um relevant for for today's, today's right now, market yep. yeah so that was yep that was thanks for taking some time excellent my pleasure thanks for um Filling in the uh, my usual chair. Your shoes I, for a day. That's right. Yeah, I like I like to. Uh, this is cool. I like I like doing this every now and then. I think it's hopefully it's a benefit, and I certainly enjoy it. Perfect. All right, man. Have a good uh, rest of your day. See ya. Bye.